We got one of these at the office a little while back. I don't know if you've seen one of these. Anyone know what this is? Label maker, Label maker right? Yeah, it's cool, right? So you, they got the keyboard and you can just uh, say whatever you want and you type it out and it spits it out. It's got a little cut button. You can cut it off and you put labels on stuff. And um, it's really pretty simple technology. It's got a little bit of like an analog feel to it. I mean, all the cool digital things in the world, this is still kind of cool. In fact, my kids picked it up in the office and they just, they're like, oh, this is awesome. They start printing out labels, you know. And so now if you go into my office, uh, you'll see it says Chris's desk on my desk, you know, because if I'm ever, if I ever walk in there, I'm like, I wonder what that is. Oh, there it is. It's my desk. It says so, right? On, you know, they put a label on it. That's a, that's a beautiful thing, having one of these. But I was thinking about this and thinking about labels, particularly labels that we put on ourselves. And I was wondering, like, what labels are you wearing today? Uh, what labels are you wearing? What are the, what are the names, of the things that people have pronounced over you over the years that have kind of stuck? And you go, well, I guess I'm just this. So for me, um, labels that I might wear is dad, um, white guy, pastor, teacher, uh, maybe like public speaker. I started a nonprofit, um, a business owner, like something like that, father, husband. Like I've got, I've got some labels that I wear, and a lot of them are good or fine or neutral or whatever. And then they have other labels that I, that I might wear that have been given to me over the years that aren't as great, like arrogant or selfish, right? And, 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 and you've got those labels. And, and my guess is that you have labels as well. You have labels that have been put on you by someone over the years, and, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. You might have labels like wife, mother, employee, employee of the month, single, married, divorced, widowed, cancer survivor, disappointment, bad father, class clown, team player, thoughtful, a disgrace. Maybe you have some of those labels and over the years that have been given to you, and maybe some of those have just kind of stuck with you. And I don't want you to think all about what are the labels you're wearing right now. I want to actually back up from that a second and ask you like a bigger question, sort of the, the question behind the whole issue of labels. And, and, and the question is this, who has the right to put a label on something? Who's allowed to do it? People have put labels on you, but did they have the right to do it when they did it? And when you put labels on you, do you have the right to do it? Who has the right to put a label on something? And if you think about it, there's sort of a logic to it. Uh, there's, there's really three groups of people that are allowed to put a label on something. Number one is the manufacturer. When you make something, you get to put a label on it. You get to say what it's called. And if you think I'm wrong, go look at the label on your shirt. Somebody made that and they decided who the brand name, they decided who it's, what it's going to be called, and they wrote the information on there because they made it. The manufacturer can name something and put a label on something. They have the naming rights over the thing. This should be kind of obvious, but your name right now was given to you by your manufacturers, right? They made you, and they go, well, we made you. We're going to name you this, and that's the name that, that, you, that you wear, right? Manufacturers uh, can label something, put a name on it. Another group of people that can name something is the owners of something. When you own something, you get to name it. My children in their elementary years had a, just a menagerie of stuffed animals in their room, just like 
overflowing and they get in their bed and throw all these stuffed animals on top. And if you ask them the names of the stuffed animals, they have names for every single one. I mean, and I couldn't keep track. It's like, and there's this tiger and this bear and this little elephant and all of these names. We would get them when we would go somewhere and they, they'd get this new stuffed animal and they have names for every single one. Why? Because they own them. They belong to them. They go, well, I own this. I get to name it. And so my kids pick the names for all of their animals. So the manufacturers get to name something and put a label on it. The owners get to manufacture, get to name something, put a label on it. And then the other group of people that get to label something is the purchaser. When you buy something, you have the, the, the possibility of giving it a name. You can say, well, this is, I, I, I bought this and, and claimed it, therefore I can put a name on it. I, the easiest way to think of that, I think, is um, like sports stadiums. Stadiums used to be called like Tampa Stadium or, or like Riverfront Stadium. They were just kind of named like where they were or things like that. And then corporations got involved and they bought the rights to name. They, they, they purchased something there and they said, because I purchased this, you have to put my name on it. And now you have... Stadiums called like Safeco Field and FedEx Stadium, right? Because somebody purchased that and therefore they get the right to put the label on it. Um, why are we talking about this? Well, in, in planning out the series for this year and talking about what we, what we need to talk about as a church and in talking to other people and looking at what's going on in, in, in politics and the news and, and praying and looking through scripture, um, I kept coming back to this idea of identity, of about who we are and, and who gets to say who we are. Because I actually think, and I've talked to other pastors about this as well, I actually think this is the number one issue facing the church and facing our culture today. This idea of identity, how people define themselves is not going to go away. So I want to take a few minutes and a few weeks to talk about who we are, who gets to say who we are, and why any of that matters. So I want to talk about our core identity. Next week, we're going to talk about how that identity gets shattered in various ways in our culture. And then in the last week, we're going to talk about if it has been shattered, what are ways that we can rebuild it. But today, I want to answer the question, who are we really? And who gets decide, to decide that kind of thing? And to answer that, I want to go back into the scriptures, and I want to go to really a very ancient text in the world. Um, at the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis kind of lays out an origin story of humanity and of the world and of all that we see. And Genesis, if you read it, especially those first couple chapters kind of digging into the roots of the thing, it does not read like a science textbook. Science textbook, 13.4 billion years ago, there was a bang, and then there were, you know, like that kind of thing. Genesis is not trying to do that. It's not trying to explain in great detail how the universe was made what it's trying to explain to you is why it was made and who made it. So it's answering different questions. And so if you open up the Bible to the very beginning and you start reading, it, it starts out by, by telling us who. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the start of all this. So everything that you see, um, God is the manufacturer, he put this stuff together, the trees, the water, the land, the fish, the animals, the birds, and then even the people. God made that stuff. We didn't make it all. God made it. We didn't even make ourselves. It all starts with him. And this should make some sense to us. Everything you see in the world, um, someone, someone or something else made it, right? Um, nothing makes itself, 
right? Even you, you did not make yourself, someone made you. This building, yes, somebody made this, right? But, but humanity may have crafted this beautiful space with marble and wood and, 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 and carpet and, you know, chewing gum. Uh, but, but all of that stuff came from something else and someone else who made the wood, who, who created marble to, to begin with. All of that stuff comes from somewhere else. Nothing gets, gives existence to itself. You don't see a Pepsi can lying down on the floor and think, that must have made itself. You, th- you would think, oh, I wonder where that came from, because you would see it, and you would see that there's a design to it, and you'd go, well, there's a designer. Somebody, somebody must have made that thing. And the Bible starts right out by saying, look, we didn't make us. Um, God creates all the things that you see here. Nothing gives existence to itself. So God lays out, it's laid out in Genesis 1, how the earth is formed and the land and the animals and the sea. And we've talked about that at times before. I don't want to go through all of that. But, but right towards the end of the creation of the world, God puts man into that, into that whole scene. And listen to the way it's described because this is a key verse in the history of the world. Okay, it's really, really key. Listen to how the description of man is when God creates man. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now we're going to unpack some of that even more next week. But for now, I want to just tell you, I can't overstate how huge these verses have been in the history of the world. This idea that we are created beings made in the image of something, that we are made in the image of the divine, that his divine spark resides in every single one of us. It's been a huge thing in Latin through the the Middle Ages and all this. This was called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And it has been a game changer in history. Why? Well, because the Jews and the Christians embrace this idea that all people are created in the image of God, and that idea breaks down barriers between people. You see, historically, there's tribes, there's nations, there's warring factions, there's racism, there's all of these things that people use to separate one another, and Judaism and Christianity come along and go, no, actually, The image of God, the stamp of him, is in every single person. Therefore, you can't treat some people as less than because they bear the mark of God as well. There's no one you've ever locked eyes with that doesn't bear the image of God. Even people you don't like, they all bear the image of God. There's something really powerful and profound in that. For Christians in the first century and the second century, there was a very common practice. I've talked about this before. In the ancient world, in the, Rome, in the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world, there was a common practice that if you didn't want a baby, you would give birth to the baby and then leave it in a trash dump to just for vultures or whatever. You just go, I don't want this child. So it was called exposure. And Christians looked at that and they said, that child is created in the image of God and deserves help and deserves love and deserves support. And the Christians would come along and scoop these kids up and raise them as their own. Why? Because they believed in this idea that at our core, we all bear the image of God. The Christians then went on to to form hospitals to start taking care of sick people because the sick people bear the image of God. And you want to take care of that in in everyone that you you see that in. Um, And over the years, 
there's been a healing um, between tribes and ethnicities and, and some of the race divisions and all of that um, by this idea and this belief that we are all created in the image of God. The Western world is actually built on this idea of the image of God. So even if you think, oh, that's not Christianity, that's not true, and you go, look, um, we're supposed to love people, we're supposed to be nice to everybody, we're supposed to have equal access and equity and equal rights for all and equal opportunity and all of those kind of things, you think that's an American idea. You go, well, it just makes sense. Of course we're supposed to be equal and, and, and love people and, and be kind. It's not an American idea. It's a Christian idea. That's where it came from because you don't see it in other parts of the world that don't have a Christian root, that don't have Christian roots. In fact, you go to a place like India, India for millennia has had an organized class system, the caste system, where some people are viewed as these are the top people, these are the better people, and these are the low class people, and they're the worst people, right? And so they have this whole system in place, and the idea is not that everybody bears the image of God or that everybody has a divine spark, but the, actually the idea is you're in the lower class because you were bad in a previous life, and therefore you have to pay for it in this life, and it's this sort of cyclical kind of thing that you're paying for past lives and that kind of idea. And what it ends up being is systemic oppression. It's the idea that, hey, some people are just less than, and if you think people are less than, you can treat them as less than. And so you have a society that has organized itself around this idea. And Christianity upends that whole thing with this idea of the image of God, that all of us have this, this divine spark, this stamp of God in us. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I I'm not a Christian, so I don't even know if I believe all of that. Um, here's the truth. You may not be a Christian, but you are a beneficiary of Christians. You are a beneficiary of a culture that was built on those ideas. Even the most secular governments in the world right now, if you looked at um, the, the Netherlands or Norway or, or Sweden or these places, these secular governments uh, that, are, that have long since left their Christian roots, these governments care for people. They, they set up social nets and, and, and networks to, to, to watch over people and make sure that people are taken care of. That's living off of the corpse of Christianity in those countries because in a lot of those places before Christianity was introduced, those are countries that are like, uh, people are like killing and eating each other, right? Because they didn't think people are worth taking care of. And so even your most secular governments in the world, in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, are just living off of the corpse of Christianity in their culture. So if you're a Christian, I think we need to be reminded of this regularly, that, that we have at our core identity this image of God, this stamp of God inside of us. Listen to the Apostle Paul write to the church in Galatia about uh, about this core identity. He says this in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How strong is that statement? Paul says, I don't even live anymore. I'm not alive. Christ is alive in me. At my core, in my heart, in my spirit, in my soul, whatever you want to say, if you were to somehow drill down into the essence of me, I am not me anymore. I am, I am someone who belongs to Christ. The way I am living, I am now living with my faith in the Son of God. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. When was Paul ever crucified with Christ? He didn't meet Christ until after uh, Christ had been crucified. 
He was crucified, he says in Romans 6, when he was baptized. He's, when you were baptized into Christ, that is going down under the water and coming back up. It is like going down into the grave and coming back up. Your, your sins are, are, are forgiven and wiped away and you come up as a new creation. And Paul goes, okay, I have been crucified also with Christ. And this is a complete change of my core identity of, of, of how I think about me. And I want to tell you that this really matters in our culture today. Because our culture will tell us over and over and over again to put something else as our core central identity. To say, this is who I am. And, that, and, and our culture will say, you get to pick who you are. You get to decide um, not just who you are, but who you will identify as. We all get to choose. And I think this idea that we are all just choosing this is actually unhelpful and unhealthy. And I get where it comes from. You can look at the labels that have been put on you, and you can go, and, 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 like people have said, oh, you're, you know, you're a failure, you're a disgrace. And you go, I don't want to think of myself as a failure. I don't want to think of myself as a disgrace. And so we, like, we put out memes and stuff that are like, don't let anyone decide who you are, you know, and you just need to eliminate all the negativity out of your life and, and that kind of thing, right? And we, we put that stuff out there and we, and we believe that and we go, man, I don't want them to put a label on me. I don't want all these people to decide who I am. Instead, here's the American solution. Instead, I will put a label on me. I will choose who I am. I will identify how I want to identify and let everybody else, like, everybody else can just back off. I get to choose who I am. And that idea is actually unhelpful, and it's unhealthy. It comes up empty. Um, And it makes so much sense in America that we would do that, that we would say you get to choose and be whatever you want. We're a land of choices. Man, when you go to the grocery store to buy toilet paper, don't you think that should be easier than it is? You know what I mean? Like, it's got one job, right? Like, toilet paper, just do the thing. Right? And then you go there and it's like, do you want flowers on it? Do you want two-ply? I didn't even know what ply was until it's toilet paper. You want three-ply? You, you, you know, flowers, you want it with fragrance. I'm like, who's smelling their toilet paper? Why, are we, why do we have fragrant toilet paper? Well, you, do you want it with lotion? No, I do not. Like, why are we doing this? All the options, just all the choices so that you can personally customize wiping. <laughs> That's what we're doing. And it's like, so in a culture that does that about that, sure, choose everything about yourself. Make all the choices that you want. Identify in any way that you want to identify. But it's going to come up empty for you. It's going to come up empty for me. Here's why. Because you didn't manufacture you. You didn't purchase you. You don't own you. God sits in that place. He's the one who actually created it all. And he defines you. And he helps you understand who you belong to and where you're from. Now for some of you, the idea that God would define you and not you define you is terrifying. Wait, what if God defines me as something I don't like? What if he puts a label on me that I don't want? And I get that. But I'm here to tell you that if you own what God says about you, it is not terrifying. It's actually liberating. And it helps you to feel secure. There was a guy named Peter. He was one of Jesus' closest followers. 
and he was a fisherman, so I'm sure he had a label of like fisherman, blue collar, working hard guy, you know, middle, you know, uh, working class, you know, guy. And and God gets a hold of him. Jesus meets him, and actually changes his name and calls him the name, gives him a name Peter, which means the rock. Um, and that guy later in his life, when he's an old man, he writes this letter and listen to what he says in First Peter two. And he says this to people like us. He says, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." What is Peter saying? He's saying, "This is who you are." God has made you to be something, a a, a chosen people. You're not an accident. I don't care if your parents said you were the oops kid that came along 10 years too late. God knew you were coming. God God, God was anticipating you. You're not an accident. You're not not just um, here, you're you're not not just here on an accident in an accidental world, an accidental universe. It's not like, hey, the entire universe doesn't sustain life except for this one planet that happens to do so, and then here you come along, and isn't that weird, and isn't that all just a weird random chance events? No. God knows you, and he, he knows everything about you. He knows every hair on your head. For some of you, that's easier for God to know than others, but like he knows every little detail about you. And there's something about that, that 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 can be not terrifying, but actually liberating. It can be a, a game changer to understand that that God actually manufactured us and, and, and he owns us. Because um, how many roads are we going to go down in, in our culture in order to find our identity? How many people can you date to make you feel better? How many people could you marry and to, to make you feel like, oh, I'm actually valuable? How, many, how much success do your kids need to have to validate your own existence? How good do you have to be in that career, that video game? Do you have to date better looking people or you have to be better at sports? Do you have to drive a nicer car? How many roads are we going to go down to validate our existence, to, to get better labels for our identity, to mean something, to finally matter? How, how, how long are we going to keep doing that? Maybe we should embrace this idea that God made us. And when he says we're enough, we're actually enough. There's, there's not enough you can pour into your own soul um, to, to, to fix this. Um, because you didn't make you, you don't own you, and you didn't purchase you. God is the manufacturer of you. I think it is just a, you know, it's always called like the miracle of childbirth. And, and there is something miraculous there. I've, I've had a front row seat to it like three times. And um, it's incredible. And, I, and, I, and sometimes I'm, I marvel at my children and just who they are and their character and who they're becoming and all of those things. And I say to my wife, I'm like, man, like, this is incredible. Like, you made such awesome kids in there, you know? Like, I'll point to her some. You made awesome kids in there. Because, like, my contribution to the our children is really embarrassing. It's like, there's not much there, you know? Like, I didn't do a whole lot. But she, I'm like, you cooked these children like in your stomach like for months and like you know there were just a few raw ingredients and then like this kid came out and they're just so interesting there's so much there you know and so it's exciting and and she'll always say like no I mean like I had an oven for that right but but she'll say like we didn't do this like God made these children um he is actually the manufacturer and how much of our parenting might change if we would own just that truth that I don't I don't I didn't I didn't really make them I don't own these kids, these, these kids belong to 
the Lord. God is the manufacturer. He is also the owner. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The God, God's got all of this. He owns all of this. He didn't just make it. He's the owner of it. It's all his. It's his money. Your kids are his kids. Uh, your life is, is, is his life lived out. Your land belongs to him. He owns us. And what does that change if we would just believe that? I'm a big fan of the Toy Story movies. I will put them up there as the best Pixar movies in the conversation of best Pixar. Um, And one of the ideas that shows up in the Toy Story movies over and over is this idea um, that when the toys are frustrated and when things are going bad and they're tempted to lose it all, uh, it started with Woody giving a speech to them to say like, hey, no, wait, uh, who owns you? And he points them to the bottom of their shoe. And on the bottom of their shoe, it's written, Andy. Andy owns them. And so whenever the chips were down, whenever things were hard, whenever they were stressed out, they would, they would have this moment where they would look at the bottom of their shoe and they would see that it says Andy and they would remember, this is who I belong to. I didn't make myself. Um, I, I'm owned by someone and there's a connection there and that helped them get through whatever was hard, whatever was stressful in the moment, this idea that they are owned. I mean, if you remember it in the, in the second movie where the guy paints over uh, the bottom of Woody's shoe and then later on he scratches it off and he sees there again, it says, Andy. And I don't know, maybe that would be helpful for us. Maybe we need to go write Jesus on the bottom of our shoes just to remember that when things are stressful, that we don't own us, that we belong to someone else, and that we are loved. There, there's something about that that will help our identity, our core, to feel secure. So God is manufacturer, God is owner, and then finally, God is the purchaser also. 1 Corinthians 6 says it this way, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, Jesus paid for you on the cross. He died for your sins, and he brought you back. He purchased you. He brought you into a relationship with your manufacturer, owner, with your heavenly father. You're back in the, in the family. Um, and that's a, that's a powerful idea, and it's one that we need to remember because it needs to be central to our identity, that we were bought with a price. So I just want to leave you with, with two questions to think about, and then we're going to kind of unpack this more next week. Question number one, who gets to say who I am? Who gets to say who I am? And then question number two, what would it look like to live out who God says I am rather than who culture says I am? Just the song.
sacrifice. Um, and as we're, as we're doing that, I want you to just think about that identity idea and then what God says versus what people have said to us over the years. So we'll, we'll take that together and then we'll close out with a couple things to tell you before we go.
And you say I am strong when I think I am weak. And you say I am held when I am falling short.